Today's sermon message is titled, A Christian in the Age of Outrage. And I want to talk about how do you deal with all of the outrage and all of the anger and, and, and oversensitiveness, brittleness that people have today. Primarily, I'm going to focus on how to uh, communicate online and how to communicate in person with people who are so quick to anger or so quick to being offended. Today's passage is a study from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 through 26. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23 through 26. And this is the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was the pastor in the church of Ephesus. And this particular passage deals with exactly this, how to deal with controversies, how to deal with people who have different opinions and different convictions than you do. And this is a teaching of scripture on how the Lord's servant is to deal with that. So let's dig in together. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, we live in hard times where people are so quick to get angry. People are so volatile. People are all about erasing people and, and destroying people they disagree with. To speak is to put ourselves at risk. Yet you have called us to boldly proclaim your gospel. To use your word empowered by the Spirit, which can do great work. You have called us to put ourselves at risk. Help us to do it in the manner that is worthy of you. Help us to not be offensive in the manner or the mode or the method we use to speak, but may we approach your word and, and talking with and loving on other people with truth the way you want us to do, Lord. I pray that you would teach us that we would represent you well and that if anything offends, it would be your word and that we love Jesus. Oh, Father, please help us now. In your name we pray and for your glory. Amen. In verse 23, Paul writes, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In this passage, Paul gives four tips to dealing with someone who has a different opinion or different conviction or argument than you do. Tip number one, the rope-a-dope tip. In boxing, there's a term called rope-a-dope, and that is where a boxer will get backed into a corner on purpose and cover up, and the opponent will keep throwing jabs and, and punches and, and hooks at him and 
the goal is to tire out his opponent. So the, the attacking boxer is, is throwing his punches and he's wasting his time and, and wasting his energy and getting exhausted. Then the guy in the corner, having reserved his strength, not getting tired, now has a huge tactical advantage over his opponent. And that's called rope-a-dope. And tip number one is don't get roped into moronic, non-educated speculations. Verse 23 says this, but have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. First, the word but is not in the English Standard Version, but it is in the Greek. And I think it's important to note that the word but has us look back at verse 22 and it says, instead of getting roped into moronic, uneducated speculations, we pursue righteousness and we pursue faith and love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from pure heart. So we don't get rope-a-doped into an argument, but we focus on righteousness and faith and love and peace with those sweet people who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. So then Paul says, have nothing to do with these type of arguments. Don't get roped into them. What that looks like is you beg them off. You ask not to talk about it. You refuse to entertain the fight or you excuse yourself from the conversation. When someone tries to pull you into it, to a speculation and a controversy, you, as the Lord's servant, don't really get into it with them. When I was studying this, I was thinking, what is a speculation? What is a controversy? Like, like, can you talk about abortion or can you talk about flat earth theory or the evolution creation conversation? What, what is a speculation or a controversy the Lord doesn't want us to get in? And you look at, at these two words here, the word foolish and ignorant, they are adjectives. They describe the kind of conversation that the Lord says not to get into. Um, and I want to say that some people are called to have certain conversations and are educated to have these conversations. Some people are not. Uh, but quality number one is a foolish controversy. The word foolish is a moronic. The, the Greek word is moronos. Uh, great Greek word, and, and now you know that one, you'll probably remember it. Uh, it is one where the person lacks a grip on reality. It is a brainless, an absurd, or as one commentator puts it, a blockheaded controversy. Something that is completely unwise speculation. Quality number two is an ignorance controversy. The word ignorant means an uneducated or untrained or without instruction. It's jib-jab. It's people speculating and, and talking about things they really don't know about. It might be like someone who's not a doctor or a nurse talking about how to deal with certain health issues and really they have no idea what they're talking about. Foolish, ignorant, controversies. The word controversy here uh, has to do with a rabbit trail from the truth. Imagine us as Christians were to be focused on what is true and thinking about what is true and what is good and what is 
valuable, those type of conversations. A controversy is when you leave the truth and, and get onto some crooked rabbit trail. Uh, it's a search or, or just a search for a debate or, or speculating. It is leaving what we know is true and chasing after the what-ifs in life. And you know what they are. We don't need to focus on them, uh, mainly because those who believe them are certain that they are right. If you, if you say, I don't want to talk about flat earth theory with someone who believes in a flat earth, they will look at you as a fool. So I don't want to get into these things uh, because anybody who believes in a weird controversy or some conspiracy theory believes in it and they'll defend it. And, and I just don't want to get into some of those conversations. Um, it is a, these type of things are illogical chasings of these extrapolations. Let me give you an example from logic. Uh, if X equals Y and Y equals Z, then of course we know that Z equals X. Well, what if Z, someone who is a conspiracist will say something like, what if Z doesn't really equal X? And, and you leave logic and you leave wisdom and you leave truth and start asking, but what if, or, or even, did God really say not that all extrapolation is bad, but rather the quality of the extrapolations here is one valued as foolish or out of ignorance. It isn't a controversy or conspiracy that produces quarrels per se. Rather, it is the arguments of a fool or an untrained person that aggravates other people. They are here to tell you what they believe. And if you continue in the conversation, it will only... And what does this passage say? It only breeds quarrels and fighting. How many of these have you been in in the last few years? Man, I have fallen upon many of these. And sometimes they start out as good conversations and they take a turn for the worse. And, and I guess you got to know when to say, you know, I'm not going to go any further in this conversation because at this point it is a fruitless conversation. But if you go down the road, you end up with a bitter exchange and, and you end up in broken relationships and, and sometimes you want to keep going. It's like a trigger. Uh, now, if you're the type of person who likes to get your adrenaline going and feel the need to thin out your relationships, then go for it. But if you want to honor the Lord and obey him, when you find a conversation take a turn for the moronic or the uneducated, then kindly bow out. Why? Because those type of conversations produce quarrels, fighting, further destruction of society. Now, there's seven types of people that I see online and, and other people have mentioned as well. And let me list them for you so you can be careful around this type of person. The first one I call the belligerent bully. That's someone who scrolls through the internet and scrolls their Facebook feed or whatever, in order to find a fight or find an offense. A Chicago Bears favorite team is the 1985 Bears, but there was a group of guys from the 85 Bears who were belligerent bullies. The defensive tackle, Steve McMichael, uh, he actually has a girlfriend back at the time he called Snake Woman. So McMichael's idea of a good time is to visit was to visit bikers bars with another defensive lineman who was all pro Dan Hampton. And they would challenge patrons to a fight. They would literally 
go from bar to bar looking to get into a fight with people. They love getting into fights. They, they felt a sense of satisfaction in getting into fights. Fortunately, it was almost never a challenge accepted. And that Steve McMichael type of person on the internet, they scroll until they find something that they can fight about. It's kind of like the bully in your school hallway who walks around with a chip looking for any opportunity to cause a fight. Watch out for those guys. The second type of person I've seen online is the what I call the argumentative trolls. Some people are contrarian by nature and they feel compelled to continually bring up the counterpoint. And some of these people do it so often they never even form their own educated opinion. They always bring up the opposite. A troll, they're known as. The third person is the uneducated know-it-all. They are uneducated on topics, but they are always certain of their opinion that you dare not question. They like to share what they know instead of learning what they don't know. The fourth person is the cyber competitor, I'll call him. Some people are very competitive, and once an argument or debate begins, they have to win at all costs. Morals mean nothing, but what means everything is them winning. Some adults like to share what they know instead of learning something they don't know. And they will argue until you lay over on your back for a stomach rub. Then you have what I like to call the argumentatum ad pessones, which is Latin for, for argue at or from passion. Some people are actually trained to let their emotions lead in arguments. It is a tactic to win the argument or to get their point across. They are the person that will appeal to their emotions and, and feel victimized and all in order to control the conversation. Then you have what I like to call the ad hominem person. That means at the person. Some people are easily offended or hurt and in their defense, they will attack you. If you have wisdom and they don't wanna hear it, or if you have the truth and can lay out your side with clarity for this type of person, the response you will get to that is not a, you know, that's a good point, I agree with you, or man, let me think about that. Instead, they will insult you. They will slander you. They will perform some character assassination of you by calling you a racist or a sexist or misogynistic or a homophobe or a transphobic or xenophobic, etc., etc. Now, Jesus shared a thought on this in Matthew 7, 6. He says, do not cast your pearl before swine. Otherwise, they will trample the pearl and turn and tear you to pieces. So if we know someone is one of these several people and we have this pearl of truth, be very careful before giving them truth and be very careful on how you give them truth because most likely they will attack you still. They will not submit or be humble in the conversation. Then you have one more, the, the appeal to authority. And, and often that's an emotional authority. And, and this is, the to me, the worst argument. It's the, well, I just feel that 
this is true. Instead of looking at what the truth is, it's they feel that something's right or something's wrong. Or I just think they appeal to their own conjured thought versus doing the careful research. Our focus as Christians is on what our master, what the Lord Jesus has called us to do. We are called to and given the authority to judge from this passage what is moronic and what is an uneducated speculation and then to respond accordingly. We are not to get off track and pulled into fruitless conversations. Our job is to faithfully disciple others and proclaim the good news to a perishing world. Check out Matthew 24, verse 46, and verse 22 in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to help us see our job a little clearer. Church, let's not get roped into moronic, non-educated speculations because they only produce fighting. Paul's second tip, don't get triggered. Verse 24, and the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil. Question, are you the Lord's servant? Are you a servant of the Lord? Then you must not be quarrelsome or a fighter. Is your life characterized by being an argumentative, quarrelsome person? Are you always having to win, correct, one-up, nitpick, or dominate others in a discussion? Or do people never bring up discussions around you because of how you respond? Watch yourself in this. If you are the Lord's servant, a servant of the Lord, then don't be quarrelsome. Learn how to get along with people. Be a person of peace, just like the Prince of Peace. Now that doesn't mean that you always agree, but rather that you are kind in your approach. Don't be quarrelsome. Instead, be kind to everyone. Kind means to be placid or to be mild or gentle or proper or yielded to God. Help Word Study says this word kind refers to the common words that bring God's order to a situation. It describes a believer acting even-handedly, avoiding unnecessary harshness or excess by speaking into a situation that God reveals. Demonstrating such a congenial disposition means forthrightly speaking God's word into people's lives as he reveals it through faith. Now, kindness comes from a knowing that God is in control and that his word is powerful and his spirit is present and at work. So we can first calm ourselves and then speak placidly towards others. We choose to trust God. We don't need to manipulate them with the volume or the pitch or the emotion of our voice. Although emotion's not in itself a bad thing. It comes from remembering that the person is not an enemy. They are created in God's image. Albeit, the enemy may have them bound one time I was sharing a frustration with a friend of mine named Terry. When I was done, he just looked at me, not with a condescending look, but with a loving look. 
in that silence, I could hear the Holy Spirit showing me where I was way too worked up and needed to calm myself a bit. Terry didn't need to even say anything at all. In him being kind and saying nothing, God and I were able to have a whole conversation in a matter of seconds. The verse continues, don't be quarrelsome. Instead, be able to teach or apt to teach. Now, does this mean the ability to, as in skilled at teaching or speaking in such a way as to be able to be heard as someone who can give input? Able in skill set or in having an audience due to you being respectable? Of course, to be a teacher, you want to have a skill set to be able to teach, and that comes through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and through you growing in your skills and in your knowledge of God's Word. But here, it seems to me that there's an element of you approaching a subject in a way that people will give you the time to listen. You're respectable. Proverbs 26, verse 4 through 5 says something very curious. I call it the teacher's verse. It says this, Do not answer a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. So don't answer a fool according to their folly. And then the next verse, answer a fool according to his folly. So which is it? Do we not answer the fool? Or do we answer to them or answer them according to their folly? If you're a teacher, this is a great passage. And you probably understand where this passage is coming from. Is it a contradiction in scripture? No. Why would, why would the author of Proverbs 26 contradict himself in, in the same sentence? That doesn't make any sense. Rather, he's teaching a wisdom here. We don't answer a fool according to his folly. In other words, we don't get caught up into the drama and start the foolish response that the person, say they're lit up in fire, they're, they're torched in anger at you. You don't answer them according to his folly. You don't match the fire that they bring to the conversation. You don't match their foolishness in order to have a conversation with them is what that's saying. But... What I think this is saying is we answer them according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. We answer him, in other words, according to how his, how his folly deserves. For me, what that means is when someone is acting the fool, I get really calm. Not to be condescending, but to just quell and put some water on the fire. That's what I think that passage means. And, and when I speak calmly, instead of getting fired up, hopefully the person will settle down enough where now I can teach and have some input into their lives. Then it says, don't be quarrelsome, but instead patiently endure evil. This is very tough unless we are yielded to the power of God. If our flesh gets worked up, it is hard to yield, but we must yield as God's servant. We must patiently endure evil. Help Word Study says, especially when harmed and treated unjustly. The word for patiently enduring evil is from the word to bear up under and the word kakos, which is evil. So literally we tolerate or hold up the weight of evil treatment. 
And Jesus said, if someone asks you to walk one mile, walk two miles. If someone asks for your cloak, give them your tunic also, or however that wording goes. But as God's servant, there are times when we just put up with, bear with people who treat us unjustly, who disrespects us unfairly. Sometimes we need to overlook falsehood and continue being kind and and don't get drawn into their foolish game. Don't play the fool with them. And what that looks like is you stick to kindly sharing what is right. And if it starts becoming too blockheaded, you bow out of the conversation by saying something like, you know, it's getting pretty heated. Just know that I love you and I am for you. Or let's talk about something else. Or let's follow up with this after things calm down a bit. Or our relation is too important to get heated over this issue. To patiently endure evil is to not be worrying about our reputation, but comes from being more concerned about what the Lord says of you rather than others. People may say what they want about you, but you're concerned what the Lord thinks, and that's enough for you. He will manage your reputation. Don't get triggered, but instead be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and patience in enduring evil treatment. That's tip number two. This brings us to Paul's tip number three. Correct with gentleness. Verse 25. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. This gives us hope that empowers us to maintain a gentle response that God may grant them repentance or a changed mind is what the word repentance means, which leads them to a knowledge and understanding of the truth. So we have hope that in our gentle response or correcting, they may come to their senses, repent, change their mind, and come to a knowledge of the truth that God is trying to teach them. Let me illustrate this. When I coach or correct someone, I love it when they have an aha moment. If you're a coach, you could probably relate. I love when the lights finally go on in their head. I had one of those myself when, when Shelly and I were engaged to be married. We did some marriage count, premarital counseling. And the pastor, Matt Zabi, he was teaching us one night, and I had this aha moment that completely changed my life. See, up until then, I would date girls by, why I had that feeling of being, quote-unquote, in love. And when that feeling would wane, guess what would happen to the relationship? They'd break up with me or I'd break up with them. Typically, that lasted about a month um, or, or until we, are, we let down our, our guard a little bit and the sin nature came out. But I was sitting in Matt's office one night with Shelly, and he said to us, love is not an emotion. It's how you treat somebody. And the Holy Spirit used that simple statement and it completely turned on the lights in my head. I was like, you gotta be, what? I never heard this before. It was like God was saying, yes, that is true. And putting exclamation points all over my head. I had an aha moment that totally changed 
my life. I love when other people have aha moments and being more aligned with the Lord's truth. Now, when I was coaching soccer years ago, I had a, a player named Tommy Garbinson. And the children, it was fifth grade, uh, fourth and fifth grade, they had no clue what to do on defense. They were just kind of running for the ball. And it was, I call it bumblebee soccer. They would all huddle together and move around. And I would teach these kids that um, the strategy called the pillbox strategy that, that I made up, you probably never heard of it before. But how I described it to them is the goal, your goal is like a pillbox and you defenders are like German shepherds and you are to guard that pillbox and not let that bomb or that ball get anywhere near that pillbox. So when the ball starts coming, you attack and you get that ball out of there. You kick it as far as you can downfield or even out of bounds if you need to. And I watched this Tommy Garberson's eyes go on. Now, now before he was a normal bumblebee soccer ball player where he would just kind of kick randomly and, you know, kick in front of the goal wherever. But I watched his eyes light up and there was a 100% increase in this Tommy Garberson. He went from an average player to a great defender from one conversation. And that is what our hope is as we correct people with God's word is that they would have an aha moment that their mind would be changed and they would come to a knowledge of the truth and follow Jesus in a greater capacity. Angry outbursts are like gas on a fire. Harshness is like wood on a fire. Both fuels that fire. Proverbs 15.1 says this in our correcting with gentleness. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. One question I have in this is, what is the difference between gentleness and condescendence? Sometime in wanting to see calm, I've seen people actually act condescending towards other people. I think condescendence has to do with pride. Gentleness has to do with talking in such a way that you extinguish a fire uh, for the person's well-being, actually. Condescendence is self-serving. Gentleness is self-sacrificing. We may want to vent our anger a bit, but for their well-being, we take a breath and speak softly. So we correct. We, the verse here in verse 25 says, we, we reprove, we train up, we educate our opponents, those who have come against us or set up attack formations against us. We correct opponents with gentleness, meekness, humility. This here is a noun where kindness is an adjective. This is the gentle correction versus a kind manner. Gentleness is the opposite of abrasive. We are called to be meek, gentle non-abrasive when we deal with those who oppose us. So bit back to coaching. You ever seen a harsh, rough coach? One who is arrogant or doesn't remember that he is there to help develop players? What does that look like? Now, some coaches yell, but others yell. Some do it with intensity, 
so they can some do it in rage so others are shamed. A gentle coach is one who keeps the right perspective and they remember that they are there to train up. Question, when someone attacks you for your faith, how do you respond? Harshly and defensively? Or are you trusting God's spirit to use you as you converse with others to help them up to Jesus? Tip number three is correct with gentleness. And we correct in gentleness, not because we are better than others, but because we love others. Finally, Paul's tip number four, remember that Satan uses people. Verse 26, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This passage concludes with hope for us who are maligned because of our faith. The hope is that our opponents will be free from the bondage they are in. And we need to know that Satan blinds and uses people like marionettes, and most don't know it. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In this passage, we see that Satan can blind the minds of the unbelievers. They can't see the truth at all. The truth is blacked out to them. Have you ever tried to share scripture or truth or talk about Jesus with someone and they give you a deer in headlights look? Satan really blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the truth, to keep them from seeing the light. He keeps them in spiritual darkness. Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 12 is another passage where Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, which coincidentally where Timothy is. So there must have been some strong spiritual warfare going on in Ephesus, possibly because Artemis uh, was being worshipped there, and, and Artemis is a goddess who is, really, they're worshipping a demon. So Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 12, says this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is saying that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against humans. Humans are not the enemy to, to us. They, they may treat us as if we're their enemy, but we know they were creating God's image. And we know that they are precious to the, 
Lord, and we know that Jesus died for them. So flesh and blood humans are not our enemy. Our enemy are rulers, spiritual rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our rule, our enemy is Satan and his demonic force that he has, fallen angels. They are doing a lot right now on earth. Now, during the millennial kingdom of Christ, they, at least Satan, will be bound. But right now, they are at work trying to destroy people. We've got to keep that in mind. And of course, in verse 26 in, in 2 Timothy 2, um, we see that people are trapped, bound in the snare of the devil. The kids and I were watching bobcats caught in snares, and we were watching people try to free the bobcats. The bobcats didn't like being caught. And what was interesting is you would figure if, if you were a bobcat that if a human came along and opened up the trap that you would, you would like come over and, and say thank you and, and maybe bring them a present or something, or something, at least say thank you. But in these videos, these particularly one I was watching, the human's trying to free this bobcat and the bobcat is flipping around, it's scared. And, and its back claws, and, and you know, cats like to scratch things with their back claws sometimes. It grabbed the guy's uh, forearm and cut it. And the guy finally pins down this bobcat to help him. And he opens a trap, and the bobcat runs away about 10 feet and stops. And then it looks at the guy. And I was waiting for the bobcat to say, thank you so much for freeing me. No, this bobcat chased this guy into his car. The guy ran into his car, shut his door, then his back door was open, he had to shut that, and this bobcat stayed waiting for that guy to get out of the car, probably not to thank him, but probably to rip him up. Sometimes people are like bobcats. They get trapped by Satan, and when we come along, we try to encourage them or help them. Sometimes they turn on us and, and attack us. But we remember that really they're in a trap. They're in a snare of Satan. He has blinded them. They are in bondage. There was a friend of mine, a guy I was counseling a teen back in the day um, named Joel. And he had a, and this is going to sound really weird, but he would have a man with a lizard head appear to him named Bonithro. This demon was leading a teen to be worshipped alongside of God. This Bonithro told my friend Joel that God wanted him to be co-deity, Joel to be co-deity, and have people worship him. So we reasoned and took a look at Joel's life, and, and I spent hundreds probably of hours with Joel, praying for him and with him, discussing scripture with him patiently, kindly. And he was great at arguing back. Bonithro even argued for him. But eventually, Joel, through the patient love, prayer, and coaching with God's word, he repented and realized that this lizard-headed man was a demon, and he fled and wanted nothing else to do with this demon. When Satan ensnares someone, 
How do they get out? When Satan blinds someone and twists their minds with all sorts of destructive thoughts and falsehoods, how can they see? How can they think clearly again? How do we as Christians engage in battle for the souls of men who are basically or so easily outraged? In order for someone to escape, it takes an act of God's spirit. Yet, God also uses us as we first gently correct people who are twisted up. As we second, don't get triggered, but instead show kindness to everyone, being able to teach and patiently endure evil treatment. Third, we keep from getting roped into moronic, non-educated speculations that pull us away from what we are to be doing. And fourth, we set our hope in the power of God that he wants to use us to free people from the bondage of Satan and the bondage of sin. I want to encourage you to think through this and, and think, what changes do you need to make? What developments uh, do you need to make in your life so that when you deal with people who are instantly outraged and easily triggered, you can have an impact for the kingdom with them? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to be used by you. That you empower us with your spirit, that you illuminate through the power of your spirit, your precious word to our eyes, to our hearts, and to our minds. Father, we are your servants. Help us to serve you faithfully. And when you return, when your son Jesus returns, that we will be found faithfully serving you in the manner that you have told us to serve you. Father, this county is so dark, so broken. I ask that you would use up and that you would raise up workers to impact and engage the broken people who are taken captive and blinded by Satan. Help us to be a light in Montgomery County, in our co-workers and neighbors and family and and students' lives, Lord. Help us to be bold and to be tactful at the same time. God, empower Harvest. It is a lighthouse, and I pray that you empower us as we go this week to make a difference for eternity and help people reach freedom in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.